Welcome to Conversations. My name is Amy Adams. I'm your host and the broadcaster of this podcast. Today's episode is number seven, changing lives, mindfulness, and becoming your best self. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Charity Collier. She is a mindfulness meditation expert and one of the first 10 people in the United States to actually receive a master's degree in the topic. Because there was so much interesting information to share in our conversation, I've decided to split this podcast episode into two episodes. The first episode with Charity focuses on the role mindfulness meditation plays in her work in the prison system as an addiction counselor and how she came to this practice of mindfulness. The second part will look more at what mindfulness is. But either way, I hope you'll join us for both episodes. Stay tuned for part one now. Hi, everyone. Today on Conversations, I'm speaking with Charity Collier. And it's all about becoming your best self through meditation and mindfulness. Charity works with uh, people who were uh, struggled with addiction in the past and are in the prison system in the United States. Um, she also does some coaching and some uh, other types of work also. So, hi, Charity. Welcome to Conversations. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so, can you just um, introduce yourself a little bit and tell people briefly uh, what um, drove you to work in, uh, actually, well, uh, in the prison system, actually. Sure. That, that, that actually is so intriguing to me. So. Right. Well, I was, you know, I work in the addiction field, but what I was working um, for probably about six years, I was working with people who were formerly incarcerated, were, had, had been homeless for a while, and now were coming into living where I was working at. And while I was there, I saw the effects of what prison, the trauma that people suffered while they were in prison. And the, um, just how they kind of stay very institutionalized and almost imprisoned in their lives after being, you know, back in society and as well as how much they got beaten down emotionally and, you know, self-esteem wise and everything from being in prison. So when I moved and was looking for a job, I found this position that was working within a treatment program within the prison system that I thought that would be perfect. It's not perfect, but I want to go in and instead of, you know, having them get beaten down while they're in there, help them heal while they're in prison so that when they do go out into the free world, they're not so raw and so beaten down and so traumatized. I mean, I can't change everyone, but I hope that I bring some kind of normalcy to their day while they're in prison to help because prison itself is trauma and they're when and i let them know that too that when they go into the free world they're going to have post-traumatic stress disorder just from prison 
let alone all of the traumas that they've had beforehand. So it's one of my goals personally, as I work within the treatment program that I work in, is to really help them see and not get so beaten up or traumatized through their experience while they're in prison. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you weren't always doing that. That wasn't your lifelong dream or career that you thought you were gonna end up with. So um, now, Early on in your life, uh, when we spoke, you told me that you loved the self-help section of books. I mean, I love that too, of course. But Mm -hmm. um, did you think, though, when you were reading books as a younger person that you would even go into uh, some kind of self-help, some kind of field where you would be helping other people necessarily? Was that something that you thought No, I think for me, and I know I've talked to a lot of other people who've had kind of the same journeys as I did is I never felt normal, right? Like I felt like there was something else was supposed to be going on in this world. Like I felt like a visitor, let me just say, like I just didn't feel right in society and around my peers. And so I was always searching for like that answer of like, what is it? Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, I would go into the border books or the Barnes and Nobles and you would find these, you know, the self-help section, just trying to answer like, who am I? What is my purpose? And I always had that like connection, but I didn't get it. You know, when you're an adolescent and you're in your early twenties and stuff like that, you're just like, going along with what society is supposed Mm -hmm. to be telling you you're supposed to be doing. But I just always had this, you know, intuition of like, something's not right. Um, And so, you know, I did go along for a while of just like, this is what you're supposed to do. And then um, in my mid twenties, I think the biggest turning point was when um, I was about 25, when my best friend she was got pregnant and you know she had been with her boyfriend for a while and everything and i thought oh god we're growing up we're gonna have to start making some decisions but i wasn't quite ready i knew there was something more i was supposed to be doing with this world and i already had my bachelor's degree in exercise physiology and i had gotten into it to help myself i felt really good um because i had been suffering depression because i didn't know what i was doing in myself right i was lost in my own mind so the depression was fueled by like i just don't know what's going on in myself um exercise helped me get out of that depression here i am out of college working in a fitness center and i realized that back in the 90s so this is like 94 95 work well yeah 95 96 actually um working in the fitness field was really about like strength conditioning and training for sports but i wanted to go into it to help people with depression and emotional wellness and stuff like that but that wasn't the time i was a little i feel like i was ahead of my time right people weren't doing that at that time people weren't aware it was really about like losing weight going you know and muscle you know conditioning and strength and training for sports So as my friend got pregnant and I had the opportunity to go, I had some family friends who lived in the South of Spain and I just was like, that's it. I, I sold my car, I packed my bags, I quit my job and I went off and lived in the South of Spain. And that's really where I just kind of had the turnaround of like, I got to figure out who I am without my parents, without society, without my friend, like the American society norms, without my friends, right. and figure out what's right for me. 
and I can't say it was like overnight. And I even actually struggled a little bit when I came back, um, you know, of the norms of trying to please my parents and this and that, but giving up on myself and all that stuff. So it took a lot of journey that way, but no, I never thought I was, I mean, I guess my, my goal in my exercise physiology was definitely to help other people get utilizing exercise, but I got a little lost in my thirties. I didn't go back into the fitness world and I just kind of worked around as an administrative assistant in, um, in corporate America, trying to figure out again, what it was it that I wanted to do. So I, I guess when it all came about of like really the calling that I got to do what I'm doing, it made like, oh, right, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. It made sense. Looking back now at, you know, what I, the first thing I did get into um, exercise physiology was to help people. And if I do, you know, I did always, I wish I had gone into psychology or minored in psychology at first in college. Maybe that would have been the path, you know, good path for me. But I don't think I would have gone on all the journeys that I did if I had known right away. And I really needed to grow within myself now to be able to give it to other, you know, share my light and my knowledge with other people and stuff like that. So that was like the big roundabout way answer for you. Oh, <laughs> no. And yes, like, no, I didn't think that's what I was going to do. But when I did get into it, it all made sense. Do you think that traveling to another place and staying there for a while had an impact on how you have, like perceived the world though? Oh yes, 100%. I think if people who don't do that don't get the opportunity to really see how other cultures and it's not just traveling. Like I lived, you know, like right, worked right. and lived and had to survive on my own, um, you learn just that it's not always so black and white. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I went over there, it, I had the norms of American society. You go to college, you find a husband, you get met, you know, you have children and you live happily ever after. <laughs> well, go, <laughs> when I went over to Europe and I was in Spain and I was around a lot of British people, that wasn't necessarily how they went about it. A lot, especially my British friends were like, yeah, we can have kids and not get married. And that's okay. Like, you don't have to be married to this person. You know, you don't have to. And I, like, for me, it really opened my eyes of priorities that I thought were like, you have to do this versus like, why can't you just be happy with somebody and, you know, live a life with them? Why do you have to go through this institutional you know, events and everything like that? So it opened my eyes. But also, I'd say the biggest lesson and what helps me is, I learned to slow down. Uh -huh. Like America is just so fast paced. <laughs> you need to do it now. You need to do it now. We got to go get it done now. And living in Spain, I learned manana, manana, manana. <laughs> tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And it really taught me how to pri not prioritize, but realize that if it doesn't happen today, it's okay. Right. It, it's okay not to like, I've got to get this done. No, just tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. You can get it done tomorrow. Right. I yeah. actually, I, I went to, uh, I got my master's degree here in Rome. Mm -hmm. And um, I remember running in the morning to go to this, uh, the first like week of school, they would have this kind of symposium with different uh, guests that would come and speak. And I remember hurrying and it was very close. I mean, I wasn't late, but I, then I saw uh, the head of the university who was going to run the thing 
just, you know, chatting to people and strolling around and saying good morning to everyone outside of the uh, building. He wasn't even in the building yet, you know? Right. Here I am running, running, running. And then, uh, you know, and that just, I mean, okay. So I was a little nervous because he was, you know, my mentor too. So <laughs> like being late, but honestly, I mean, it was something that one thing that I like about the culture in Romania is that you, when you do walk down the street and you run into somebody, you can, maybe you will say, okay, I am in a hurry if you're really running late. But still, even then, you kind of take five minutes and have mm-hmm. a chat, you know? Right. Very rarely do you, like, run off. I mean, and you usually end up getting where you need to go anyway, and nobody's really freaking out about Right. You know, they didn't have, they don't have to-go coffee there. Like when I lived in Spain, there was no to-go uh-huh. coffee. If you wanted a cup of coffee outside of your home, you sat down in a cafe and you enjoyed your coffee. Uh-huh. And, and, they, and, and they didn't chase you out of, the, out of there. No, you sat there for as long as you wanted. <laughs> so it really, it was a really learning lesson for me of like slowing down. Like, don't, why are we rushing things through life? And then not to get so wrapped up in the, what's next? you know, what's next? Enjoy what's happening right now. Like, let's, you know, sit down and enjoy this cup of coffee. Not let me sip this cup of coffee while I'm doing 20 other things and, right. and driving at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So I guess I was probably, you know, my starting point of being mindful of being present in the moment and enjoying things and just being grateful that I, ha- you know, can sit down and have a cup of coffee or sit with friends. I mean, I love one of the one things I loved was the siesta, right? So everything basically stores and um, banks and any businesses, they close by two o'clock mm-hmm. and you, we would all meet in the plaza and sit and have coffee or drink, uh, a set, uh, some tapas. And for an hour, just sit there and talk with each other. And then we would go off and either go, you know, home or whatever. And we would go back to work between like five, depending on what industry you worked in, between mm-hmm. five and seven. And it was just so wonderful to have this period. Like everybody had to take this time to be right. present and enjoy each other's company. It wasn't like, oh, I get an hour lunch break and I'm going to go run a bunch of errands. No, right. there's no way of opportunity to run errands because right. everything is closed. You're so forced. let's be, yes, let's be present and let's just enjoy this moment in time. So I guess that was my start of my mindfulness that I didn't even realize was happening, but how to enjoy being present and slowing right. down and just things will get done when they get done and not to stress about it so much. Yeah, I honestly kind of wish that um, everyone in uh, the United States, because I grew up the same way. I grew up where I hurried up. I, you know, went to work. I got married by 23, you know, Mm -hmm. I I didn't have children, but it was, you know, that was kind of the thing. You know, I met somebody three years later, we got married and that was the way that was the trajectory for us then. Right. (laughs) That was what was kind of expected, even without even thinking about it. You know, it it was my goal. I mean, not to necessarily like, I happened to meet a person that I fell in love with young, 
but still mm-hmm. it, it was like my idea that yes that's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna like right. get married and that's it and then I'm gonna do whatever <laughs> and you live happily ever after yeah. right <laughs> yes. exactly. so oh um, gosh it's, those... <laughs> it's so complicated though life and, mm-hmm. and so many different things can happen and yes I think it is, uh, it's kind of interesting too, because one of the things, I know that we're kind of going a little bit off on the topic, yeah, yeah, no. but, but one of the things that I th- find interesting too, though, is that like in the, the culture that I'm in, the families are, um, they, they also do have kind of this idea, I think of like getting out there and, and, you know, growing up and meeting somebody and getting married, but not necessarily immediately. Um, but they also have like this kind of, uh, network of their family. So even if their family doesn't live in the same city as them, like the kids will go and stay with the grandparents for the summer for a few months or Mm -hmm. something. And so there is, and, and if the grandparents are closer, they are really involved in the lives of the family. Right. And I actually think that that, and the reason why I'm actually kind of bringing this up is because since you're, uh, one of the problems in American culture is this kind of hurried thing. And I feel like there is a big disconnection of the family. I mean, I, you know, it, it's in other cultures too, but I think in America, it's really the whole idea of like this individuality and everything yes. for himself and, you know, go get them. I mm-hmm. think it did disrupt the family uh, a lot. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I actually talk about that a lot with um, people that not only that I maybe counsel individually, but especially the people I work with in the addiction field and even the prisoners that I talk about, I say, sit down, have family dinner. Like that's the time for communication is sitting every night and having family dinner put the phones away, like no phones at the table. I love, like I actually been um, working with a, uh, a family where they have three sons and the mother. And I said, every night to share your day, start the, your meal off with talking, saying one, each person gets to say one thing that they're grateful for in that day. It could be, I was grateful that, you know, I had gym class today, or I was grateful that I made, on, made it on the bus and I was on time. It doesn't have to be what you're grateful for, for the people at your table, but what, what's in your day. And that helps each person bring something to their family, bring something to their connect, um, to what their individual day was like to share with the family and to build, but also having gratitude for just that day, something in your day helps. Uh, I mean, it's a very big part of, you know, self-help and mindfulness and stuff is being grateful for things. So I think that's, helps bring that family unit back together that we've kind of lost yeah yeah and now and especially putting the phones away yes the big one putting the phones away but I mean and the reason because also um you were telling me in another conversation that we had that one of the things that makes for a successful transition from the prison system out Mm -hmm. of society is the support of the family Yes, but went and listened to a panel of um, men who had formerly been incarcerated and talking about how they have succeeded outside of prison. And I say succeeded in like success and is very different for everyone, right? So, you know, not to put the norm of the word success, but 
succeeded in their own individual life, like how they, why they didn't return to prison, why they didn't return to using drugs and alcohol. That's success, right? Mm -hmm. So the common theme was that they had somebody, either family that supported them in a healthy way, right? Because there is enabling and codependency that can lead a person back to their old behaviors, but a supportive manner. Um, or there was somebody, whether it was a counselor or a mentor or a sponsor, someone who, you know, believed in the person and mm-hmm. let, you know, and let them know, hey, I'm here. I believe that you can do this, but let the person do it, right? Versus I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that you don't fail. But you have mm-hmm. to give that kind of boundaries of, I believe in you. I know it's hard but you can do it and let them kind of fumble along the way. So that was the common theme on this panel of why these men succeeded, like didn't go back to prison and didn't go back to using drugs and alcohol when they did get out of prison was because they had some type of support system. And I think that's having communication and it's hard in families. I mean, I know and I hear a lot of, lot of disturbing stories of families and um, especially working in the field that I do, but even it doesn't have to necessarily be a family member. It could be a counselor or it could be a mentor or something like that. But the support system is what is what's going to help a person really succeed in individually in their life outside of prison. Yeah. And I, I do think that family, I mean, I am, I did use the word family, but I do for my own self, even I consider some of my closest friends. Mm-hmm. My right. Absolutely. They are really who I speak to regularly and share things with. Mm-hmm. So I think um, we can create our own family. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, which I, I think is really good because there are some families that there's trauma in the families or there's, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I kind of find interesting is I remember somebody said to me, oh, well, you know, family, uh, you know, if you're, if somebody's not close with their family, I don't know about them. Maybe they would be a little untrustworthy. And I said, well, you know, not every single person on the planet has a good family. (laughs) Not everybody is nice. I mean, there are issues and problems. People face these, uh, you know, and not even, I mean, and then there's the whole thing where there's like generation upon generation where, uh, abuse happens in a family and then mm-hmm. the next generation it gets carried on and yes. hopefully the person can overcome that but if they can't I mean it happens it continues right. so um like so I I was a little suspicious of that person myself that, <laughs> yes well you know we all don't live in you know fairy tale land <laughs> right right exactly and we oh and that's the thing people have a hard time remembering is that um, people, we never know what other people have gone through in their lives and the why, the reasons that, you know, especially when I sit in here with these prisoners, these guys that come and hear their stories and hear the trauma of their childhood or, you know, at young, young ages, the things that they went through, I, I say, it's no wonder they're here. Mm-hmm. Of course, that explains why they're here. It's not just that they just they were, you know, kids that just rebelled or, you know, kids, you know, at 15 years old said, you know, there are some that are like, yeah, I had good parents, but I just didn't want to listen to them. And I went off and did my own. Do I regret it now? Yeah. 
but I would have to say 95% of the people, the guys that I have worked with, not just in the prison system, but outside in the free world who have gone through trauma or gone through addiction and stuff, a lot of it has to do with because of the trauma that they had in their childhood. And so if they don't have the means in the, you know, um, means or the outlets or anything that somebody to come along and help them, they have no other way of dealing with things. And that, that's what leads them down to the path that they have. So um, if somebody can't recognize that, then they, it's sad for them because they're going to block some maybe really good people coming into their lives that they don't realize just because of the, the shoot, you know, the lives that the person has gone through to get to where they are. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's why they, there is such an importance of like a, a counselors and mm-hmm. teachers, even like for children. Yes. You know, um, I think we don't even use kids spend so much time in school, even right. uh, that the teachers have a huge impact on them and they can really make a difference. And just Absolutely. one little action towards that kid could remind, you know, make a a huge difference Mm -hmm. you know I don't remember all of my teachers but I remember one that was very important to me I'm sure that you know most people who go to school have like one teacher that was special to them or something that right something that they wouldn't have known or you know Mm -hmm. an interest in them and a lot of it is about believing in right so like I have um, a guy on my caseload right now and he is just he's a troublemaker right he's constantly and I'm constantly giving him a hard time about like hey stop doing this you tell me that you don't want to come back to prison that you don't want to go back to using drugs and alcohol but your actions are speaking differently and I'm he's like you know turns around to me he's like Miss Collier you're always riding me so hard and I pulled him aside I said I'm being hard on you because I see that you are good inside you keep saying to me I'm not a bad person I know you're not a bad person but I have to be hard on you to, for you to see you're not a bad person and that you're worthy of not making these mistakes anymore. And he was like, I appreciate that, Ms. Collier. So just having somebody like that say, hey, I see you and I see that you're good. And let's figure out how you can see that you're good. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, I mean, maybe they never even heard that before. Right, right. There exactly. They may anyone who has ever said that. So. Right. And I think a lot of people equate with when people are being hard on you, it's because they don't like you or it's because they think you're a bad person. No, I'm being hard on you because I want to pull the good out in you. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, you're seeing what the, I mean, and you're also, I mean, you, you're trained in, so you had your bachelor's in health and fitness in the yeah. exercise physiology, but then you yes. went and got, after you felt a calling to help others, um, then you were became like a licensed addiction yeah. counselor. Is that what it is? Yes. Uh, yeah. So, so I went back for um, addiction counseling and I got, so I am a licensed addiction counselor. And then um, I went and figured out that I could, I, I got into mindfulness and meditation. And then I realized that there was an actual master's degree in the United States for uh, mindfulness studies. And I am actually one of the first 10 people in the United States to get this master's degree. So I like to boast about that. I don't brag a lot, but I like to brag about that. Um, So 
the mindfulness. <laughs> Thank you. So for me, you know, I started using mindfulness in my own life, right? My own practice. And it really helps me get through dark times. And as I was counseling people in addiction counseling, I was like, why aren't we utilizing these tools? meditation and mindfulness and everything. why isn't this being introduced because through that you become a lot more calmer you are, it's just a wonderful way to heal people mm -hmm. so that's what kind of when i went into the mindfulness studies program i concentrated on uh, addiction and utilizing mindfulness in addiction treatment mm -hmm. and i wrote my thesis on that i did pretty much every paper all my research was looking at how you can implement and utilize mindfulness and addiction treatment. But I also branch out and I see other people, non people with, you know, everyone has an addiction of some sort, but uh, people who maybe not have a severe addiction. Um, I also help people with utilizing mindfulness and meditation to help them with stress and anxiety and other things that people every day stress, you know, just worry about in life. I help people and guide them through that as well with the mindfulness and meditation. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting though, because in the last, I don't know, however many years, but you know, finally science got around, you know, the technology for the yes. brain and everything came around and they were able to measure, mm -hmm. and see what's happening and right. how, you know, what areas get lit up and the synchronicity between the hemispheres and everything else. Oh yeah. It's so it's, you know, it's one of these things that it's scientific. Now we can, you know, this whole Western idea that it has to be science. Well, it works. <laughs> so. Yes. It's so interesting you say that because one of my first classes I took in my program was um, meditate. It's called meditation in the brain. And it was uh -huh. the neuro, the neuroscience behind that meditation. So we did, we did a lot of research on looking at all these studies that they hook up fMRIs and how all the brain and everything is going on while it's during meditation and the outcomes and everything. And one of my first posts was, it just makes me so angry that, or annoyed, I wasn't angry, annoyed that we in our, um, you know, our society that we have to have science to prove that something is okay. Right, because for the 2,600 years that people have been practicing mindfulness and has been wonderful, we didn't believe it until a science have to say, okay, and now we can say, oh, okay, yes, it works. But we're not believing the 2,600 years of it working in other countries. So I was like, why can't we just take its word for it? Why are we so programmed that it have to have? Oh well, scientists say so. That's it. Then it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it's very frustrating because I also had another conversation with a nutritionist on here, Amber, a while ago, and she was saying too that it's like 18 years before uh, some of the ideas that are scientifically proven actually become known. Like, right. You know, and it's like right. 18 years. That's a long time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so far behind. Yeah, very frustrating to me because it is. I mean, there's a lot of different things, and so you know, and it's even. I mean, I, I don't want to go on conspiracy theories, but they, you know, I read something recently where there was some kind of article where they went and they looked at some of them, and they were like, "Yes," and they were. This one was actually true, and this was true, and this was true. Right. So just because we don't see some kind of scientific data, you know, it doesn't mean that something 
isn't possibly true. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But we're very programmed in our society that we have to see the scientific stuff before we yeah. decide on it. Yeah, and Absolutely. I do think it's okay to be skeptical of something. But mm -hmm. I mean, especially when you see, though, I mean, this is like tons of people were benefiting from it. And right. It, so it's not like just, you know, one or two or a handful. Exactly. <laughs> countries, countries yeah, have been benefiting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I've been benefiting from this, so people yeah. are happier. Right. So, um, yeah, so the mindfulness studies program, mm -hmm. though, for the masters. Now, you looked at the neuroscience, and then mm -hmm. you actually ever—I mean, this is kind of a weird question, I guess—but <laughs> did you actually meet up and do like group meditations? Oh yes, oh, yes. Okay. So, part <laughs> of um, well, and we did a lot of. Um, pretty much every class we had a partner that we would have to meet with weekly to do practicing and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but part of the program, it's, it's a low residency program. So once a year, we, during the summertime, we have to go on campus for a whole week. And that whole week is um, just the people, you know, the people in the program getting together and taking classes, but we also do a lot of practicing of meditation. Uh -huh. And it's a whole like intense, you know, seven days of classes and practicing and getting to know everybody. But the best part about it is the practice and um, just getting to, because it is an online program, but okay. we do meet once a year for the, you know, on campus. And then every, pretty much every one of my classes, we got partnered up and once a week, and it would switch out every like couple of weeks. And we would have to do face to face, whether it was Skype or however, to do practice together with my, you know, or just meet and talk and discuss or do projects together. So, so there's a lot of FaceTime, but also one of the courses is a requirement of a silent retreat. So you do have to go and find a silent retreat somewhere and go for seven days or more on a silent retreat, which is just life-changing in itself. I mean, okay. um, seven days isn't, is too short for me. I like to, I'm, my, my big goal is 10 days. I haven't been able to get to just work restraint wise, but I would love to go for a 10 day silent retreat. So. Wow. So yeah. actually that's kind of interesting though, because I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm make stretching for, on this, but I think in prison, right, your people, they're kind of taken out of like the mainstream environment that is that in a very kind of very different way than going on a silent retreat somewhere, but you're going like, it's an opportunity for self-examination. Yes. That, yes. I think that, I guess that's, I finally figured out what the <laughs> I was trying to make there, but right. not that anybody who's in prison would necessarily think about that. that no, way. they don't. <laughs> so. And they don't. And they make their world while they're in prison, they make it a, a, another world for them. There's a lot of activity and there's a lot of just loud external noise. Um, so it's hard for them to be quiet. So that is one of the things that when they're in the classroom with me, I try to implement um, at least 15 minutes. Uh, some days I don't get 15 minutes. I can get 10 minutes with them of meditation mm. for so many different reasons with them. Um, there's one because of the stress of what's going on around them in prison. So they got, you know, officers calling out things to them. They got um, there's a lot of gang activity. There's a lot of alpha male doing 
crazy thing. Sorry, there was a squirrel just went by the window. Um, squirrel. <laughs> crazy activity. You know, there's just a lot of commotion going on around them. So that's a lot of stress, loud noises and stuff like that. They're not eating well, right? They're having, a, they're eating a lot of just crappy food, ramen noodles and sodium. And just so that, so there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of, you know, health problems. So the one thing I do with them is definitely let's figure out how to lower the stress. Let's relax. A lot of breathing exercises to bring down the stresses. And then the other thing that I do with them is the reason why I do the meditation is for them to start. We, in the program, you know, we try to, in addiction, you try to, you know, you have the addiction voice and then you have your true voice. So I try to help them figure out their addiction voice versus their true voice. So I do a lot of meditation that will kind of help them figure out that they have a choice actually, because a lot of people don't realize that they can choose to listen to one voice or the other inside your head. Right. So I try to teach them that for the meditation. Um, so the, I do a kind of a whole reasons of different why, reasons why I do the meditation with them, but um, for not only the health purposes, but to kind of let, teach them to go in and to relax and to be aware of their thoughts and their breathing and everything like that. So I try for the most part, and some days I don't get to do it just because either we're so involved in the, in the curriculum or in the, um, cause I t facilitate groups and that's usually when I'll do the meditations. Uh -huh. Um, we get so involved in the talking or this, you know, that it doesn't leave us a lot of time, but I try to, and to the point now where when they see me, even if they don't have me as a facilitator, if I have to take over another group or something, they're like, are we going to meditate? Is it time to meditate yet now? You know, like they're asking for meditation at this point with knowing me and everything, which is really awesome. And it's proven. I mean, I've seen a lot of studies done where um, utilizing meditation in prisons is help is very beneficial for them. Um, I don't, the meditation that I teach is very secular. So I don't do it in a very Buddhist kind of way. Although I personally love to try to follow um, the Buddhist concepts and stuff like that. But for me, just cause I don't, I, you know, people of all different denominations are in the prison, you know, as anywhere else. Um, I definitely teach it in a very secular type of way. Definitely a lot more breathing exercises. I may do some body scans or something like that, depending on what's going on around, you know, there's been times where the ant, I just walk into a room and the anxiety and the stress and I'm like, whoa, 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 let's, let's start everything off with a meditation and I'll do a body scan with them to just relax them and just calm things down in the room. And then I can facilitate because sometimes they're just so amped up with whatever is going on with them in their dorms and their ranges and stuff. But it's very beneficial for them. But I've used meditation, not just in the prison, but when I've worked in outpatients or when I've worked inpatient, mm -hmm. um, people need, you know, don't necessarily need to, they need to calm down, right? They need to slow down. They need to relax their bodies. And um, especially people who are active in addiction aren't taking that time. They just feel like they got to go, 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 go. So do some, I know that you're doing uh, the meditation in the group. Uh, you know, you said earlier that you do it actually in the group and sometimes mm -hmm. you can, like, 10 minutes or something, but do some of the prisoners then actually, they know how to do it and they do it on their own. 
Yes. Yeah. I have a couple of guys who said that they do it in their bunk, um, you know, at night to fall asleep um, or they just practice it on their own in the ranges to kind of get censored because a lot of the guys, they live in like bunk beds. The ranges are not individual cells like we see on TV, but they're bunk beds in an open area. And there's usually between 50 to 60 guys wow. in, these, in this area. So there's a lot of noise, a lot going on. So some of the guys absolutely have taken the um, practice and do it in their range. They'll say, I just get on my bunk and put on a headset and just will meditate for a little bit. Um, interestingly enough is some of the other things that I teach them is find grounding, right? So meditation is also about being grounded and mm -hmm. finding your center. And I share, I use crystals a lot. I'll always have a crystal in my pocket or whatever. And I teach them about being grounded and finding something that's grounding for them. And funny enough is a couple, like over month span, a couple months span, I've noticed three different guys well, two different guys. One guy was out on the flat. We call it the flat top. We're out on the flat top. And I said, what's that you got around your neck? And it was actually a crystal that he, he goes, I listen, Miss Collier. I listen. I have my own crystal. And then another prisoner um, came up. He's like, Miss Collier, come here. I got to show you something. And he showed me. He's like, look, I got a rock too. I got a rock. I use that for my grounding thing. He's like, I'm like you. And I, so it's to see those kind of things as well. It's like, it's about grounding. It's about being present. It's about reconnecting to something and outside of yourself. And that's, you know, what I think it's escapes people about mindfulness and meditation. It's not just about like, all right, I got to let go of my thoughts. I, I'm going to be peaceful. It's about finding yourself and who are you and being grounded and being okay, being uncomfortable with inside of yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, and I shared too, is like recently I bring in inspirational cards, right? And so I let them pick the card and let them read and they're like, wow, I really needed to hear that today. This is a message that I really needed to hear or what, you know, so mm -hmm. giving them these tools. So it's not just about the meditation, which is great. And that's really what my, you know, what I want them to walk away with is learning that, but also learning about that there's these other things that keep you present and keep you mindful mm -hmm. of who you are and what you're really about and being present in that moment and not just like, what do I got to do next kind of thing. So mindfulness is very, it's a broad, you know, thing. It's, there's a lot of little entities within it that it's, you know, people don't necessarily understand or don't always get that it's a lot of unfolding of people and stuff. So. That's right. what I really try to bring to them. Um, but I do know I had a couple of guys on my caseload who their homework was assignment was to meditate for five minutes a day to really, you know, for anger issues and for to find peace. And a lot of the guys, there's an addiction in, the, in the, as a whole, not just with the prisoners, but in other places where I taught and stuff is that people have used substances like especially you know marijuana and to calm themselves down right because we're anxious we want to calm down so they use a substance well you have your own self meditation can calm you down whether it's taking 10 deep breaths or sitting quietly for five minutes that in itself is self-soothing 
um, rather than using a substance for self-soothing, you know, to right. soothe yourself. So that's what um, I really prescribe meditation and versus, you know, go <laughs> finding something else to soothe you. Thank you for listening to this part of the interview. We will continue next week with part two of our conversation with Charity Collier. Now, before I sign off, I'd like to ask you to subscribe to the channel of YouTube if you're here or to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening. And please leave a review. It means a lot. And don't forget to check out our website, ConsciousLife.Guru. Until next time.